0: Here's Nancy Pelosi's number one lesson of power, which is one that her father taught her, which is nobody is going to give you power. You have to seize it. And she has certainly seized power, including that first election to get into the leadership. She understands that when she steps down, she can't deliver the Democratic leadership to anybody. They're going to have to go out and seize it. She may endorse somebody. But she can't deliver the office because nobody can because nobody's going to give you power. You have to seize it. This is Sarah.
1: And Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. On today's episode, we are going to discuss a few of the top headlines in the first part of the show. And then we've brought back our dear friend, Susan Page, to talk about her latest biography, which is about Nancy Pelosi. We were both really surprised by how little we knew about Speaker Pelosi. So I think you're really going to like that conversation. We always love talking to Susan, and this is no exception. Outside of politics, we're going to be discussing those of you who are getting back to the job market.
2: Before we jump in... We are working very hard on our summer infrastructure series, and we are so excited for you to hear it in July. You might not think of infrastructure as like the most exciting topic, but we're hoping to break it down in a way that shows how different forms of infrastructure impact us in real life. And so we are so grateful to those of you who have shared like what the actual cost of various utilities are for you, what childcare costs look like, and our contributors are working hard. It's
1: just going to be a great series. So get excited for July. So we're going to talk about the latest discussion about the origin of COVID-19. But before we have that conversation, we did want to acknowledge that America experienced another mass shooting on Wednesday in San Jose. Nine people were shot and killed. The gunman then killed himself at a local rail yard after a union meeting. It is another moment where I think Governor Gavin Newsom expressed it best we're all around sitting around wondering what the hell is wrong with this country why we continue to experience mass shootings and loss of life and grief and heartbreak the ripple effects of which will affect San Jose and California and and the entire nation for years to come we're still learning more about the shooter and the victims and what happened but we did want to just hold space for
2: Things just flow, wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com.
1: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting.
2: Sarah, I know that you've been talking on the morning news brief about renewed interest in the origins of the COVID-19 virus. And renewed seems like the wrong word. I don't know what the right word is, because there are people who have cared about this from the very beginning. There are people who have kind of had a sense of what happened and are now finding it disturbed. I have just felt from the beginning of this virus, like, I don't know where it came from. And I hope that someone finds that out, but that's not my top priority. So I haven't felt particularly shaken by this news, but I was interested in your thoughts.
1: Well, I think this particular development touches on so many things. I mean, it's definitely garnered a lot of attention because both the Secretary of Health and Human Services and President Biden called for renewed investigation into the origins of COVID-19, particularly the consensus seems to be turning from that it passed from animals to humans to that it is increasingly likely that it escaped from the laboratory in Wuhan. You know, just me personally, from the beginning, I I have definitely cared about the origin of the virus. I think it's really, really important. And I thought, well, Oxum's razor here tells me that if there's this incredibly important lab dealing with high-level biological viruses and this is where it originated. Particularly so many of the people that were diagnosed with COVID at the very beginning did not have any contact with the market which China was pointing to as the origin. Like well this seems like a pretty likely scenario. And I think what happened as people try to point that out or try to sort of criticize the Chinese government's the narrative, the investigation, media coverage was what we've seen in a lot of places when it comes to COVID-19, which is there was such distrust within the Trump administration and its supporters that if any of this information came from that side, it was sort of this knee jerk. Well, of course, they're wrong. I mean, in particular, Senator Tom Cotton in hearings and then later on Fox News was sort of pushing this idea and saying, like, why are we not paying attention to the fact that there are some red flags coming from Wuhan, particularly with the Chinese government and it's pushing this theory that it came from the, the market there. Zineb Toufechi had a really interesting breakdown of a fact check on when he said this and the way that they, you know, use scientists that disagree with him to say like, well, this is a conspiracy theory. And I, I just think it gets it so much, right? It gets at media coverage. It gets at fact checking. It gets at reporting on scientific information. I think it really gets to something that touches on why you're more comfortable with this, which is you're comfortable saying, I don't know. And I think what this shows is so many people are not comfortable, particularly in the media saying, I don't know. And I do think it touches on this idea that like, if it comes from the other side, it must be wrong. I love the way that David Leonhardt and the New York Times said it, which is like, no side is right or wrong all the time, right? Like no side is right all the time and no side is wrong all the time. And And this is
2: the kind of inquiry where there shouldn't be sides,
1: right? It's just a question. It's just a question of fact. Right. That's the problem, though, with COVID, right? Is that was never true. Yep. Yep probably because Donald Trump was our president when this pandemic started. And so it was just like, that could not be true. right? Like that was just, he infused politics into everything. And I think that this is just one other space that this is playing out. And I, I but I do want to say this too. I think another issue is that this touches on, you know, what we've been talking about with Israel and Palestine, because I do think that there was a threat of this That was important. And I think people were trying to do the right thing, which is in our disagreements and critiques of China, what we don't want to do is perpetuate anti-Asian hate or discrimination. In the same way that like, you know, this is a conversation we were trying to have. Like it's, we have to be so careful in critiquing Israel because as we've seen in the United States over the last week, week and a half, that becomes anti-Semitic violence. And I think, like, I'm not really sure. I think this is actually the most difficult part of this situation is how do we, in this interconnected global world, critique countries, critique powerful countries aggressively enough in a way that does not put certain members of the population in our multicultural democracy at risk for discrimination and violence. And I think that is incredibly difficult. I think that is the key question. I
2: think about it constantly. And I think one way is to break things down more. So if the origin of COVID-19 was a lab accident That is a totally different thing than a weaponized virus. That is a theory that's never made sense to me, the idea that China deliberately put COVID-19 in the world. So many people in China died. It has caused so much trouble for the Chinese government. It it makes no sense to me that it was weaponized. But I think that that is a leap that people were making at the very beginning and trying to guard against that theory getting much traction. So, you know, step one, what are we really even talking about here? It concerns me it concerns me to think that we might ever turn away from facts because we're concerned about any ramifications of those facts. So, I don't think it is inherently racist to ask the question, where did this virus originate and and why and how could it be prevented again in the future? I also think it is difficult whenever you're talking about the Chinese Communist Party to grapple with both the fact that many Chinese people suffer because the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party has nothing to do with people who are from Asia living elsewhere in the world and the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has this deliberate diaspora strategy of trying to harness influence throughout the world. And all those things exist alongside one another. And it is incredibly difficult to talk about, just as it's incredibly difficult to talk about Judaism and the Israeli government. It's so hard and so fraught. It's difficult to talk about Hamas indiscriminately firing bombs at Israel without talking about all people across the world who look Muslim and are at risk whenever we're talking about any form of terrorism. And and all of that is so unfair and so wrong. And when we think about just the acts of hatred that follow any of these stories, I don't know. I don't know how to find the root cause of that other than thinking about just this fundamental overwhelming loneliness and sense of disconnection from other humans that I worry so many of us feel. And I don't know what to do about that Um, other than keep attempting to do our best to say, okay, what is true? And then what do we make this mean after we've ascertained that it's true? And a lot of times that puts me back into the place of saying, I don't know, which is, you know, I appreciate you saying I'm good at that. It is the hardest lesson that I've had to learn in my life and one that the universe keeps teaching me over and over and over again in big things and in small things. It is so much better to say I don't know when I really don't. Because there are enormous consequences to theorizing and then trying to kind of make your theory true.
1: I mean, I will say that I think the reason I think it is important to learn the origins of COVID-19 and the reason I've always been interested in sort of I want to know the truth Mm -hmm. is because, you know, one, so that we pay attention to what happened and and prevent it from happening to other labs There need to be changes at these labs because I do think it escaped. I don't think it was, you know, released as a biological weapon. Sure was a sloppy release if that's the case. And then I think that it is beneficial to the conversation we were having on the nightly nuance last night, which is we need to show the as best we can and as often as we can the terrible repercussions of an authoritarian government. And this is a good example. They try to hide it. They tried to cover it up. People lost lives as a result. They do not allow scientists and institutions to function independently and transparency. And this is what happens as a result. I'm not saying that something like this couldn't happen in an American lab. Accidents happen. But what made it dangerous was the, the government's reaction to it and the fallout from those decisions. And that needs to be articulated. And I think my... Some would call it pessimism. I like to think about it as just a open and loving acceptance of the human condition is that there is no way to prevent what Oprah calls certain low-frequency people from hearing even the most well-articulated, this was an accident, but it came from China and not that fear-based response having it play out as discrimination and sometimes violence. I wish there was a way to 100% prevent that. And I think there's lots of things we can do to make it harder. I guess my argument is, instead of saying we can keep it from happening, we should acknowledge it is likely to happen. So how do we prevent the worst? Like, be transparent about the fact that some people are going to have nasty reactions when we criticize China. Like, learn from our history with World War II. Learn from our history from Vietnam. Learn from our history of some people are going to have nasty, discriminatory, racist reactions to our decision making or actions on the global stage, criticisms on the global stage, and like be prepared for that. And in, instead of just hoping it doesn't happen, because I do think that we need to and I think the Biden administration wants to become a more aggressive global competitor with China and hold China's feet to the fire on lots of things. I also think, this again, the natural repercussions of their decision making, it being sending Bad vaccines to Brazil, all kinds of things. Like, that's going to play out. I don't, I, I see what they're trying to do. And also, history tells me it will fail. I see what they're trying to do in Africa. I see what they're trying to do in other countries. But I truly believe it will fail because of what we saw happen in Wuhan. And I mean, I'm talking like this is a fait accompli and we know exactly what happened. And I, I don't mean to do that. I think there's still a lot left to learn. But you know what I mean? Like, I have other examples in China where we can say, Not to be flipped, but like when you're authoritarian government, you have a tendency to get out in front of your skis. You know what I mean? Like transparency and diversity of opinion and the sort of principles that we that function under a democratic government and under democratic institutions work. They are not perfect, but they work for a reason. And I just think like we need to make sure and articulate that and show that. And I think this is a really good example to point out, like. This is what they're trying to do, and it is failing. And I also think it's an important, as we've seen in America, particularly with the growth in anti-AAPI discrimination and violence to like understand that this is the the risk. And instead of saying, well, it won't happen, or we'll try to prevent it from happening and saying, "Like, let's assume it's going to happen, and let's be real and concrete about how we're going to protect people when it does.
2: So if I kind of go back to my, let me slow down and break things apart approach... I agree with you on needing to know the truth about where this virus originated, if that is possible. And I think this far out from its origin, it's going to be difficult to ever really know, but I hope that we can figure this out. I agree with you that the Chinese government has taken steps to prevent the world from meaningfully investigating its origin, and that is an enormous problem. I agree with you that I think it is highly unlikely that this was intentional. If we determine that it came from a lab accident, another thing I want to break apart is that I don't think that means the United States should stop collaborating with scientists across the world to study these things. Mm -hmm. I don't think that means that we shouldn't study these things because the risk is so high. I think it means we need to figure out what happened and do our best to not have it happen again. It concerns me that on the Senate floor, because of our senator from Kentucky, Rand Paul, we're already like seven leaps down the road into, I believe it was a lab accident. I believe that we should stop funding any research in Wuhan. Yes. Like, that to me is like another train of thought. It is not as consequential and horrific as the violence and discriminatory actions against AAPI people It is also, though, enormously consequential for the world and probably (laughs) related if we really break it down um, to those discriminatory thoughts and reactions. Like, we need to do science. And I think the really difficult conversation that we keep having in so many contexts around COVID-19 is that the world is full of risks and it is how we manage those risks and respond to them. I would hate for us determining that this was a lab accident to jeopardize funding for research that might help prevent something like this again.
1: Yeah. And I think the media coverage just has difficulty holding all that complexity. I don't think I'm saying i mean, breaking new ground here that conflict is rewarded and complexity is buried, especially in intense situations like COVID. And I just hope we learn from that. I hope we integrate some of this learning. I think we will. I think I've seen you know, a lot of coverage of the mistakes that were made. I think that's really positive And I just hope that continues.
2: Well, I will give a shout out to a place where I'm seeing a lot of I don't know. I covered the topic of Havana syndrome on the Nightly Nuance this week. Havana syndrome, if you're not familiar with that term, Relates to a condition that is coming up for diplomats and CIA personnel and just government officers across the world in different posts, but primarily in Havana, Cuba, in Uzbekistan, in Russia, and in China, where people report just a very weird set of symptoms. One person called it immaculate concussion. It's like a lot oh of what gosh. happens if you got a concussion, but but there was no actual impact. And there are theories about it being microwave rays that have been weaponized. There are theories about it being some kind of sonic weapon. But I have noticed that almost every news outlet that I've read that's covered this has said, like, the headline and halfway through the piece and at the end, we just don't know. We don't know who, do, who is doing it. We don't know why it's being done. We don't know how it's being done. And it has struck me how unusual that is and how healthy it is. It's disturbing. It doesn't feel good, right? You, it's very, very unsatisfying. But I really appreciate the care with which that story is reported.
1: Next up, we're sharing our conversation with journalist, biographer, and Washington Bureau chief for USA Today, Susan Page, about her new book, Madam Speaker. dot com slash pantsuit. We are delighted to be here again with just one of our favorites, Susan Page, who has written another amazing biography. We had you at one of our live shows when you wrote that biography about Barbara Bush, which is one of my favorites and I recommend all the time. And now you've done
0: it again with Nancy Pelosi. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Sarah and Beth, it's so good to be back with you. Thanks for having me back.
2: Well, tell us how you chose the subject of Nancy Pelosi for your next biography. Quite a jump from Barbara Bush to Nancy Pelosi. Some or, might say, I was going
0: to say, or is it? Or is it? <laughs> <laughs> so you're taking all my lines. So they seem pretty, pretty different, right? One's a Republican, one's a Democrat, one's the spouse of the others, the principal, but there are some ways in which they're alike. And the ways they're alike are the things that appeal to me. They are both consequential. They both have had an impact on our country. And they both are complicated. They both have some dark sides as well as bright sides. And I thought that both of them had been not particularly well understood. You know, and Nancy Pelosi particularly, there are folks who love her. There are folks who demonize her. Uh, and I thought neither of those was quite right. I was appalled at how little I knew about her life.
1: I mean, I am a person who worked for Hillary Clinton. I worked on Capitol Hill. I was a women's studies minor. I put up my own women's history posters in eighth grade. Like, this is my thing. I read all the first lady biographies. Like, this is my my passion, is women in politics, women who really, you know, reach the pinnacles of power. And I knew so little about her life.
0: You know, when I was working on this book, of course, I was interviewing anybody who was willing to talk to me. And I was surprised by the number of people in politics who had worked with Nancy Pelosi, who did not know that her father was this larger than life political figure himself, the three term mayor of Baltimore and somebody who instilled a lot of lessons in his only daughter. And so you are not alone in not knowing very much about Pelosi's background.
1: I mean, she keeps it pretty tight. Do you think she keeps it close to the vest
0: on purpose? She's like the worst interview. Have you you interviewed Nancy Pelosi on your podcast? Because you you definitely should. I'm sure she would do it. So you should ask her. But I'm telling you, she's a really tough interview because she's guarded and she's incredibly disciplined. It's hard to get her to say anything. She didn't walk into the interview. She's very private. She's actually kind of shy, which you Mm -hmm. wouldn't think about a politician who's been in power for so many decades. Uh, All those things make it hard to like break through to get what she might not want to tell you or to understand some of the internal forces and impulses that have made her so effective as a politician. Mm
2: It was striking throughout the book to see all of the artifacts that you reached for to try to better understand her. And I loved it when you would say, my son bought this on eBay, you know, and and would just kind of tell us about that process. I wonder what was really surprising to you or super challenging as you were going
0: through that kind of exercise. Well, I loved finding stuff that hadn't been found before. And it was also, you know, we were just talking about how she's a tough interview. The most effective thing I did in interviewing Nancy Pelosi was bringing to her things I had found that she didn't know about. So, for instance, her mother, who was this remarkable figure, her mother, who was called Big Nancy. Nancy Pelosi had to leave Baltimore to get away from being called Little Nancy. Her mother, Big Nancy, was her. Uh, father's political organizer she was uh ambitious and restless and smart she was uh, a risk taker she loved to play the ponies and it all she was also as it turned out an inventor she invented this machine this little aluminum machine to give women facials and she filed patent papers at the u.s patent office for this machine so i went to the u.s patent office uh and found the patent papers her mother had filed. She had never seen those before. And as you mentioned, one of my kids went on eBay for my birthday last year and found an actual, one of these machines called Nancy D'Alessandro's Beauty by Vapor. And he bought it for me for $34 uh, for my birthday.
1: First of all, I want to raise sons that thoughtful. That's just a very strong son gift on a birthday to like, know what you're working on to that level of detail. I'm very impressed. You give me your parenting tips later. <laughs> I was struck, speaking of her mother, you know, her mother was this organizer. She was really the ground game and the favor file that she kept. If anybody came in and they needed something, then that's fine. It will help you. But then your name goes in the file for the next time somebody needs something. And I thought about when you make the point that San Francisco is really the most sort of like that sort of big city political system like you see in Baltimore and Chicago and New York like San Francisco has that that set up more than other cities on the West Coast and also you know the thing I knew about Nancy Pelosi always and forever is that she's a phenomenal fundraiser and I think it was an easy narrative to say like that's how she rose to power she raised money but I think two things are true about that favor file and I want to hear what you think about this like that it one you kind of have to be running that kind of ground game to run that, to raise that level of money. Like, you know what I mean? Like you have to know favors and in connections and networking to raise that level of money. And also that to keep the caucus in line and to be able to accomplish what she's had to what she's been able to accomplish as leader, both as majority leader and just leader of the party, you're also working that favor file constantly, not just in fundraising, but in political organizing and campaigning, candidate recruitment and I just think it's such an underappreciated political gift. And, and even back to when she was raising that, it was her mother that was doing this, right? Like it wasn't that her father. Her father was the charismatic one. But the power lay mostly in that favor file.
0: Well, she was delivering the votes when he was running for election. And she would, uh, Big Nancy would sit at this desk in the front room of their home and Little Italy, a small townhouse that now a cousin lives in, still in the family. And people would sometimes be lined up on the sidewalk outside to come in to seek favors. And from the time she was a little girl, little Nancy would be seated by her mother taking notes on these cards so that they could both take care of what the constituent needed, but also keep a record of it. And they would use that in a couple of ways. Later on, when somebody down the road had a favor that they needed that maybe a previous recipients could help on, they would go back and get that person who had gotten a favor to pay it forward, in effect, to help out somebody down the road. But they also would make sure that person was turning out for a political rally and certainly turning out on election day and certainly voting for Tommy the Elder D'Alessandro.
2: What I kept thinking about in the favor file chapter, which was one of my favorites, was how nancy pelosi has become such a nationalized figure i had just been reading the day that i read that chapter an article about how in local races right now statewide races nobody's running against joe biden republicans are running against nancy pelosi and i thought how odd that she was raised in such a hyper localized version of politics and has become this national symbol yeah
0: but she, but it's as Sarah was saying, it's the same thing, right? Doing the running the favor file for constituents in Baltimore is exactly the same thing as running a favor file for Democratic members of the House uh, who you're trying to hold together in your caucus. But it's you are certainly right that she's become a nationalized figure on both sides. She's somebody who unites Democrats. She was the face of the Democratic opposition during Trump's presidency, but you know she unites Republicans too. Mm-hmm. And as much money as she has raised for Democrats. Republicans have raised off her name for Republicans.
1: Before we move on from her raising, as we say in the South, in Baltimore, I was struck by the story of the death of her brother before she was born of pneumonia. And I was struck by that because the same day I was reading the New York Times morning brief and David Leonhardt was making the point that public health breakthroughs are essential and so important, but it is really the government who distributes those public health and makes them widely available and that her brother and her family was caught in this in-between time when the the scientific breakthrough was discovered but not available. And I wonder how much of that generation and even maybe back to like Barbara Bush's generation, like how much they have taken in that insight, even subconsciously, that they were in the the lag, right? The lag between we knew things that could save the life, but we couldn't get to them because the government hadn't gotten them to us yet. And how much that plays in their conception of public service and, and
0: serving and governing. It's it's. I think it's one of those lessons she's so internalized. Uh, you know, maybe that affected her early advocacy on behalf of yeah. people with a- HIV AIDS. Uh, you know, she became a big advocate for compassionate treatment, for research, At a time that was considered a kind of a risky political step to take. Now, she was representing San Francisco, which was the city hit hardest in those early days by this epidemic. But, you know, I think you saw that reflected, go forward to last year, I think you saw some of those same impulses reflected when she was trying to think about dealing with the early days of COVID-19, where you remember she pushed for dramatic, exponentially more funding than President Trump was proposing in the early days of the pandemic uh, because she wanted this all in effort funded by the government to get a vaccine and distribute it. Uh, You know, there's another way in which you think about the effect of your parents and doing these two biographies has really, I guess that's the most um, uh, obvious thing in the world to say, Uh, but you just see how parents leave an imprint on kids in so many ways, Uh, you know, she's her position on immigration where she is pro, she thinks immigration is one of the things that makes our country strong. Uh, She's uh, very much opposed to discriminatory uh, actions against immigrants. She was quite dismayed by the Trump administration's policy on immigration. Well, her family bore the brunt of discrimination against immigrants when they immigrated here, her grandparents from Italy, a time when Italian, immigrants were seen as not very smart and, and uh, not very clean and, not, and and not very law-abiding and had all these stereotypes about them that her ancestors had had to deal with. All those have an imprint that even now at age 81 is reflected in her politics.
2: As you move into talking about her political career, I felt you trying to both really explain to the reader that Nancy Pelosi says she never intended to be a politician, while simultaneously helping us know that there's a lot of skepticism about whether Nancy Pelosi actually intended to be a politician. And I would love to hear you talk about that and and how your thinking on that may be evolved throughout the course of the book.
0: So she, you know, she who was who was more born and bred to be a politician than Nancy Pelosi, the daughter of Tommy the Elder and Big Nancy. Uh, you could not have had more training for the in the world of politics, but. You know, I in a way, I take her at a word, word I think it's generational. Mm-hmm. I think that neither she nor her parents ever thought she would run for office. She could be an advocate. She could raise money. She could do the kind of organizing her mother did. But the idea that she would do what her father did was something that required a leap of faith that it took her a long time to make. And I think like many women of her generation, she only took that leap of faith when another woman encouraged her to do that. There had been Some male politicians, including Mario Cuomo and Jerry Brown, who had urged Nancy Pelosi to run for office before she did. But it was only when Sala Burton, who was a San Francisco congresswoman who was dying, it was only when Sala Burton called her in and said, I think you should run for my seat when I die. And I'll endorse you that Pelosi made that switch. She went from being working in her mother's path to working in her father's Mm -hmm. path.
1: Well, because she stayed political. You know, she was raised to be a political animal, and she was, you know, even when she was raising a lot of children. She had, as she will tell you, she had five children in six years. And I don't want to skip that phase of her life because I think it is also, like, you see it in so many areas of her career. I will never, as long as I live, forget that press conference when somebody said, you hate him. And she, I mean, she, you could hear, it's not the word she used, but when she said what she said, all I could hear is, we don't say hate in this house. Like, I could just... That was such a strong mom moment. I was, I have never loved her more than in that press conference. And she was like, I don't, I don't hate anybody. I am Catholic. Like I could just, her mom energy was so strong. And you can just see like that organizing, that strength, that like, I'm going to put on this mom wall and you're not going to get past it. And you can try, but I had a lot of little kids and a lot. And I thought also all the tidbits about like how she kept them organized and dressed and who did the laundry and like all of that was just so humanizing. I mean, truly, it is like very humanizing for somebody who has been a part of this like national narrative that has little to do with the human being that she actually is.
0: You know, the other time we saw the mom come through was the first, President Trump's first impeachment and the House was voting on two articles of impeachment and they voted on the first one and it passed and some Democrats started to cheer and she shot them a look that is familiar to all of us who have mothers. Yes. It was like, do not do that. And it stopped. It's just amazing. I love
1: it so much. I just think it's such good. It just shows that exactly like you said, like the skills are wide and varied when it comes to being as a politician that's as good as she is, right? And as like her skills are very diverse. And I think the generational component, like I totally agree. We were talking about this earlier and I said, you know, my grandmother's 84. I am very close to my grandmother. The idea that my grandmother as a child was thinking about, running for Congress, I mean, you might as well have said she was planning on being an astronaut. Like, it just was out of the realm of possibility at that age.
0: It's remarkable. Not so very long ago either, right? But now, of course, women can be run for office. Women can be vice president, maybe one day president. Let's hope. Women can be astronauts. But it was only a generation or two ago when that was just really unthinkable for most people.
2: One of the aspects of your book that got a lot of attention when it came out was how the speaker talked to you about the squad. And I wondered, I was I just thinking so about what it must be like as a woman journalist. I mean, you two have ascended to a place that women of Nancy Pelosi's generation would not have aspired to, right? So a woman in your position talking to a woman who is the most powerful, second most powerful now woman in government, about these young women who have Become iconic in their own way very, very early in their careers. I would just love to hear kind of how you approached that topic with her and and what you hoped the conversation might look like and, and how it turned out.
0: So that was, uh, first, I just have to say she would dispute one thing in your question, which is she would dispute that she is now the second most powerful woman <laughs> in American politics. The first time. When someone said that after Kamala Harris was elected vice president, Pelosi made the point that the Speaker of the House has a lot more power than the vice president. Mm-hmm. The vice president's power is derivative. So she, she is now one step, uh, Kamala Harris is one step closer to the presidency uh, in the line of succession. But Pelosi, I think, would say she's still the most powerful woman. In, I like and respect politics. that clarification. I yes. take it. <laughs> <laughs> so the, this interview, I said that she's a tough interview. This was the best interview I had done with her until one I did it about three weeks ago, which was a little better. But in terms of getting her to be candid, this was great because she was so mad that she put down her let down her guard. She, it was this interview, one of the interviews I had for the book, I had 10 in all, happened to be on the day that the, a dispute with the squad just blew up. Uh, it was a dispute over the squad defecting on a vote on immigration. And then there was some back and forth. And. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff then posted a tweet that characterized some uh, House Democrats, compared them to those old Southern Democrats who had blocked civil rights legislation for so long. That is a really inflammatory charge to make, especially against a Democrat, a fellow Democrat. And so when she came into the interview, she was still all wound up from this fight that she just had in the democratic caucus. And so I started to ask her about it and she became uh, actually then annoyed with me uh, because she didn't really want to talk about it. And she said, you know, it was nothing. It was Democrats being Democrats. I then quoted something she had said, which is, I said, does the squad understand the difference between making a beautiful pate and making sausage? Mm -hmm. And the point that Pelosi had been making with that comment was that wouldn't it be nice? We'd all like to make a very nice fine pate, but most of the time we're making sausage up here, which is kind of messy and coarse, and sometimes you leave blood on the floor. And she said, yeah, they don't understand the difference between that. And when they want to get something done, maybe they will. And then she said, some people, and here she was quoting Dave Obie, who had uh, once been chairman of the Appropriations Committee. She said, as Dave Obey used to say, some people come here to pose for holy pictures and say, see how pure I am. And other people come here to get something done. And it was clear that she thought the squad was posing for holy pictures. And even though Pelosi is a devout Catholic, that was not intended as a compliment. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, here's where I'd like to ask you about, you know, she has a relationship within the Democratic Party. And I think her point Is a good one. And I think, well, before I ask about her relationship with the Republican Party, I do want to ask about leading the Democratic Party, because as I was reading and thinking about her leadership from San Francisco, from this incredibly liberal district, which is basically, you know, once you have the seat, you have the seat. Right. And I thought. This is kind of a weird dynamic we've set up for parties, right? Is the people who lead them are sort of the people you need to be there for the long run in a very safe seat. And also because they are in a safe seat, you need this person that understands, like, the moderate who's always fighting for their seat. It's this very weird dynamic within a party. And I think you see it with, like, AOC and Abigail Spanberger. This, like—but she does—despite the fact that she's in this incredibly safe district— And and she's managed to become leader, leading the Democratic Party with members from all over the country. How do you think that, do you think it's the lessons from Baltimore where she's able to keep that in mind? Or do you you also think that sort of by design, this is an inherently conflict-ridden, difficult position to be
0: in? Well, of course, when Republicans say she's a San Francisco liberal, they're right. She's from San Francisco and she's really liberal. Uh, But she's also a Baltimore Paul. You know, she's also her her father and her mother's daughter and pelosi understands that if you want to be speaker that is if you want to hold the majority you need to elect people from swing districts where it is very toxic to say you're for defund the police or you're for the green new deal or you're for medicare for all those are liberal policies that will not fly in some of the districts that you have to win and one of the things that annoyed the squad and others in the most progressive side of the party is that Pelosi has been very protective of those moderates. She calls them the majority makers mm. and sometimes at rebuking more liberal policies that she probably would support herself in her heart, but she thinks it politically not the right thing to do. And Pelosi is, Pelosi is never posing for holy pictures, right? right? Pelosi is never trying to show how pure she is. Pelosi is focused on what can I deliver? One point of dispute with some of the most liberal members is that Pelosi would take half a loaf over no loaf any day. And if you can get the whole loaf, that's great. But if you can't take half a loaf, and not everybody in her caucus would agree with that. Mm. She has had the opportunity
2: through two impeachments, which I'm sure she would have preferred to have different opportunities. But through those two impeachments, she's had the opportunity to elevate the profile of a number of members of her caucus. And I would love to hear your insights on her strategy in choosing those impeachment managers. I
1: thought that part was so
2: interesting
1: where they they didn't even know until they showed up in her office and she's like, okay, it's you, you're up. I
0: know. Wasn't that wild? Uh, And she didn't consult with anybody. There there was no question who was going to pick them, the impeachment managers, which was this huge plum because you were going to be at the center of historic events and you're also going to be on TV day and night. So there's nothing about that that members of Congress of either party wouldn't like to, to have. She she said that every there were 200 Democrats who wanted to be impeachment managers. You know, there are only like 220 in the House. So that's <laughs> just about all of them. And she picked this interesting group that included some real surprise choices. Uh, you know, for one thing, she didn't make Jerry. Nadler, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, head of it, because even though by being chairman of judiciary, he thought he ought to be, she made Adam Schiff, with whom she's very close, head of the impeachment managers. Behind the scenes, she kept, she would call him, refer to him as the general. And then she chose this very diverse group, this very deliberately diverse group that included some people who were pretty prominent because you know Zoe Lofgren who had been worked on impeachment as a staffer in the Nixon impeachment and had been around for the Clinton impeachment so she had a lot of experience but she chose some people who were surprising she chose Jason Crow who was a freshman Democrat from Colorado who had opposed her election as speaker but he had this great history military veteran JAG officer uh, she thought he would be good she put him in this very plumb job Val Demings Uh, who was not a lawyer, uh, the congresswoman from Florida, but a former police chief from Orlando. And, you know, Val Demings was also a pretty junior member of the House. And by putting her there, giving her her the platform of the impeachment hearings, Val Demings first was on the shortlist for Joe Biden's running mate and now has launched a Senate campaign against Marco Rubio. And that is due, at least in part, to Pelosi giving her that opportunity as an impeachment manager, you, you know, I, in the book I would compare it to Ocean's Eleven, which is a book movie I really like, and how uh, George Clooney picked all these people with different particular skills uh, for the heist, uh, and Pelosi was kind of doing the same thing.
1: Well, and what's so interesting is you have other, you know, stories where she, somebody like opposed her. And then they couldn't get a meeting. They couldn't get a thing. It's like it shows you like it's really it's political. It's not about ego. If she thinks the politics makes sense, the politics makes sense. If you were opposing her just to oppose her and the politics didn't make sense for you or anybody else, she's going to remember that, too. Like, I just think it's so interesting because, you know, both picking somebody who opposed her and then that poor woman from Nevada who couldn't get anything until Harry Reid came and prostrated himself, you know, like, it's just fascinating.
0: And Harry Reid had to beg three times, it took him six years to get this new congresswoman from Nevada on the committee she wanted on because she had the offense of not voting with Pelosi in a leadership in a leadership fight. You, the House Democrats understand that you do not want to cross Nancy Pelosi. One, I understand uh, that, and I'm not yeah. in the House. <laughs> One uh, political reporter described her as an iron fist in a Gucci glove. And that is like the perfect description of Nancy Pelosi because she does have a Gucci glove. She does know how to run the favor file. But when she needs an iron fist, she has that too.
1: Well, and that's why I want to ask about the Republican, her relationship with the Republican party, because I thought that the interviews, you know, John Boehner and a couple of times you like people made the point, look, she holds responsibility for the polarization too. There were times when it might have benefited the country for her to work with the other side, but it did not benefit her party. And she chose to benefit the party and not, you know, not make out or reach out or do the compromise or whatever the case may be. And that she, you know, that iron fist comes down on the Republican Party pretty, pretty often as well.
0: You know, I think that's true. Now, nobody's saying Pelosi's responsible for polarization, but she's operated effectively in a polarized world. And John Boehner told me there were, were times when he wanted to lower, when John Boehner was the Republican speaker, there are times he wanted to lower the rhetorical temperature and that she would not follow suit a top aid former chief of staff to George W. Bush told me the same thing, that George W. Bush, you know, in 2007, when Pelosi was first elected speaker, and it was the first time she was on that chair behind the president for a State of the Union address. You remember George W. Bush came and made very gracious comments, that it was the first time in history any president had said the words, Madam Speaker. And he talked about her dad, who had served five terms in the House. And Bush thought that Pelosi never reciprocated, Mm. that there was an opportunity to have a more productive relationship than they had. I will say that the places where Nancy Pelosi learned lessons of power, Baltimore and San Francisco you did not need to work with Republicans. Yeah, these were both Democratic strongholds. You had right. to worry about the Democrats who might challenge you, not about work, building bridges with Republicans. And in some ways, I think her career reflects that training.
2: Well, especially it—it it surprised me in those early chapters. I think that occasionally I succumb to this romanticized view that America hasn't always been so polarized. <laughs> and when you told the story about her refusing to take an elephant from someone because she knew what that was. I just, I thought this is a good reminder that we have always had strong tension between these parties.
0: Yeah, that was when she was just a little girl and her father on election day took her to a polling place and a polling worker tried to give her a little stuffed elephant, a toy, and she wouldn't touch it. She understood that elephants were not to be, you know, embraced in any way. And years later, she was about to rent a house in San Francisco. She and her husband Paul Pelosi, they'd had a lot of trouble when they moved to San Francisco finding a place that would take a family with five young children. One can only imagine why. Uh, (laughs) And they finally found a place and they were about to sign the lease. And she found out that the reason the house was available was that the owner had gotten an appointment in the Nixon administration. And she backed out. She said, I can't rent a house that's available because of that, uh, because of Richard Nixon's election. And They didn't rent the house. I was fascinated, you know, as you as you look at her long career,
1: but a long career that took place after she had primarily raised her children. That means it's a long career in that she is quite older. (laughs) It was 81, right? The best quote I thought, into because I wonder about it all the time. Listen, I wonder about those heels on that marble floor. I'm very I have so many questions about that. But I thought the quote from her husband that said, basically, you know, you're talking about particularly during COVID when everything was so intense and she was there all the time. And he said, I just don't think she knows how old she is. <laughs> and I am blown away by that. And I am blown away by her a level of energy and her level. I mean, and now she hasn't decided if she's going to run again. Like, that's back in the news. And I'm just like, what? What?
0: That's not really a question, I guess. That's just my shock. She didn't run for office until she was 46. She was 47 when she first got elected. And I wonder if there's something about having a late start means you wanna stick around because by the time she got to Congress, there were members of Congress, men her age, who had served four or five terms already. Uh, There's also, it's also true though, and this was one of the things I discovered in writing the book, that in 2016, she had actually planned to retire. She hadn't told people this, But she planned to retire after, of course, Hillary Clinton was elected president, as she and the rest of us, most of the rest of us thought. Uh, And it was only when Trump got elected that she decided to stick around for some more terms. I do think this is probably her last term. I do think this is her valedictory term. She's 81 years old. She's got nine grandchildren. Uh, She might possibly want to start wearing something besides those stiletto heels. I
2: found more understanding for the longevity of her career, though, in that story about Sally Burton. When you are asked to run because someone is dying, I think that might change your perspective on this is a thing that you retire from earlier than, you know, the the late stages of your life. That that story was really helpful to me in a number of ways.
0: Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. It, there's really a relationship among women, don't you think? Mm-hmm. And not that we don't have men who are our friends and who we rely on as mentors and all that. I'm not saying that, but I think there is something there is something special about your relationship with women who have carved a path for you, and also women who are peers uh, who form your support group, your group of girlfriends, and for your relationship at my exalted age with younger women who are just getting started. So,
1: if this is her final term. That means that the Democratic Party is facing the ending of an era and some big decision making. I'm wondering, all these interviews and all this reporting, what do you see as the future? Who do you see as her successor?
0: Here's Nancy Pelosi's number one lesson of power, which is one that her father taught her, which is nobody is going to give you power. Mm -hmm. You have to seize it. And she has certainly seized power including that first election to get into the leadership, she understands that when she steps down, she can't deliver the Democratic leadership to anybody. They're going to have to go out and seize it. it. She may endorse somebody. Uh, I don't know if she will or not, but she can't deliver the office because nobody can, because nobody's going to give you power. You have to seize it. That said, you know, she's pretty close to Hakeem Jeffries, the congressman from New York, who is a member of the leadership who was she named as an impeachment manager. That's a sign of how of her high regard Uh, and who would be, be himself. She was a groundbreaker as the first woman. He would be a groundbreaker as the first person of color to lead one of the parties in Congress. Wow. But there are a couple other prospects, Uh, you know, Karen Bass from California and some surprises. I bet there'll be a candidate from the left side of the party. Yeah. Um, it'll be it'll be a battle. And Whoever gets elected, they're going to be different from Nancy Pelosi, right? Uh, They're going to have different strengths and different weaknesses and probably face a different landscape because it is more likely than not the Democrats will lose control of the House next year. So they'll be back in the minority.
1: Well, and it'll be shocking if it's as long of a term as hers, like as long of a to keep that position of power for as long as she has. I would be really shocked if somebody can maintain that.
0: You know, it'd be historic. She's the, had the longest tenure of any leader uh, since Sam Rayburn. Wow! And one thing that struck me was people say Nancy Pelosi, if you said Nancy Pelosi to somebody, who is she? They'd say she's the first woman to be Speaker of the House. And that is true. But you could also say, who is Nancy Pelosi? And you would say she is the most consequential Speaker of the House, at least since Sam Rayburn and maybe longer than that. And in some ways, the fact that she broke ground with her gender has obscured the fact Mm -hmm. that she has been such a powerful and productive Speaker of the House. So true.
2: Susan, as I was reading the book, I was thinking about the fact that you moderated a vice presidential debate while you were working on this book that you've been writing for USA Today, that we have this presidential election, a pandemic, so many things pulling at your professional attention while you were working on a really detailed biography of Speaker Pelosi. So I wonder, as you kind of process everything that was going on in the world while you were writing the book, did anything in the book jump out to you as like, just a crucial, relevant insight for where we are politically today?
0: You know, uh, Pelosi has a couple favorite sayings. One is nobody's going to give you power, you have to seize it. Another one is don't agonize, organize." And this is something she started saying after the only race she ever lost. She made a bid in 1984, 85 to chair the Democratic National Committee. She thought she was going to win. She thought she ought to win. She probably was the best candidate. After a campaign that was just full of sexist attacks, she lost. And at the end of that, she said, Don't agonize, organize. And at that point, she just ignored obstacles in her way and plowed ahead. And that has been. These four disruptive years with President Trump, I think that's been good advice. And just in general in life, when you feel overwhelmed, uh, you're not sure you're going to make it through, don't agonize. Organize is probably pretty good advice.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us about Nancy Pelosi and your insights about consequential women in American history. Just keep them coming. Do you know who your next biography is going to be about?
0: Well, I'd like to do another one, but I, I haven't settled on a topic so do you have any suggestions
1: oh this is the moment in my life i've been waiting for that the biography Mm -hmm. i want to read i gotta i gotta think about it what about you beth who do you want to read a biography of well i would like to
2: read a biography uh on ambassador swanee hunt for sure Mm. i think her life is so interesting and and we know her to be such a lovely human being personally i think that would be fascinating I would also read a Susan Page on Condoleezza Rice in a <laughs> <Yeah>. hot second.
1: <laughs> yep, yep, that's a good one. That's a good one. I don't know. I have to think about it. I will I will submit my suggestion. I'm going to have to ponder this a little bit. Who do I really? who am I really intrigued by?
0: Yeah, send it to me anytime. There are a lot of you know, there are a lot of interesting women out there who haven't gotten their due.
1: Yeah. Well, there's all that that new podcast about Lady Bird Johnson. I, I'm going to be honest. I was not giving Lady Bird her Johnson her due. The fact that she was talking to him that much, I would never have guessed it. Never, ever had guessed what they're like revealing with all that audio.
0: Yeah, that's a Julius Swag. That's a really good book.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say with Condoleezza
2: Rice, just to make my pitch, your criteria of consequential dark and light sides interesting not well understood i yeah. think she fits i'm just saying
0: yeah <laughs> that's great have you now have you guys interviewed her on your podcast no we haven't you definitely should you should say we just recommended you to have a biography written about you so won't you come on and talk to us on our podcast <laughs> we should <laughs> we should do that thank you <laughs> well you should and
1: you know who else i'd like to know okay I, I think i have mine i'm not to just keep on the first lady bit but i do think they're so fascinating there was a moment in an interview with jimmy carter where he was talking about Rosalind was really pushing him to go in with force in the hostage crisis. And I thought, really? Like, I was like, pretty often telling him, like, you're not being hard enough or, like, even in some elections, she was kind of, like, pushing him to be a little more cutthroat. And I thought, I don't think I understand Rosalind Carter. Mm-hmm. I think there might be more to Rosalind Carter than I thought there were, which is really interesting to me. Like, I, you know, that he was like, yeah, she really wanted me to be tougher. And I was like, okay that's not what i expected Uh,
0: well those are great ideas thank you so much thank you again susan always great to talk with you hey thank you so much for having me back and congratulations on your great podcast oh thank Thank you you so much
2: sarah and i have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that
1: Thank you so much to Susan. We love having her on the show. Beth, you've been having a lot of conversation on Instagram about reentering the job market. Lots of anxieties and questions out there in our community about that journey.
2: Well, you say a lot that COVID has shaken things loose. And I think we can see that in terms of how many people in our community are either looking to go back to work after staying at home with children or looking to change careers or who've been laid off or otherwise lost a job and are looking to reenter the workforce in some other capacity. And it is a really hard thing. And I think that the main thing that I want to offer to people the, as you're thinking about this is that it is so important to value your own experiences. And I don't mean that you like pump yourself up with Tony Robbins kind of advice or, you know, look for hashtag girl boss or something on Instagram and, and adopt that kind of persona. <laughs> I think writing a resume and a cover letter is a descriptive exercise instead of a an exercise where we sort of flaunt our credentials and experiences. I feel like that's the mentality that I've always heard brought to resumes and cover letters like you want to display all of your things right all of your awards and honors all of your educational achievements you want to display them and and that's true to an extent but i think what makes for a richer resume cover letter job application interview is your ability to describe things people hate it in interviews i know when the interviewer says can you tell me about a time when you demonstrated resilience like i get that we don't like that but That's where the questions are going, because that is what is more valuable when you're looking to add someone to your team, someone who can actually describe what's going on and relate it to situations that they've been in before. So if you've been staying at home with small children, think about how you can describe what you do every day. You probably manage a lot of inventory in your household, right? You think about where to buy stuff. You manage a budget. You're basically running an organization within your home. I think that is only thought of as a resume gap if we continue to allow it to be a gap. That is work experience, right? You are working. If you went on strike... There would be a real consequence in your household and in society. And so I would just urge you to really lean into describing all the things that you do or have done in different jobs that you want to apply in a new context or whatever the case may be. And I would urge my friends in HR to recognize the courage and determination of people who are willing to do that and to see what an asset that can be to the people in your organizations.
1: Here's what I would add. I think that people get limited in their language and cover letters and resume. I totally agree with that. I also think people can get limited in their ideas about their network. Like, I think everybody thinks they need to have a connection to like the HR department. I got so many jobs through like former interns, people who didn't even work there anymore and people who were pretty low on the totem pole. Because a lot of times people, people just want to like know somebody you know that'll say they're great. You know, <laughs> like it doesn't have to be that you know the CEO or you know the HR manager. Like it can be somebody that didn't work there for very long, doesn't work there anymore, or maybe, you know, was just there in a temporary capacity vouching for you, putting like a human face on those pieces of paper that I think are, are so hard to break through with. And so I would also encourage people to just really expand their understanding of their network and not think that you have to have a connection at the very top in order for that connection to have impact on the hiring process.
2: I just think that's true all around. Like, how can we sort of shift our expectations away from only the highest credential, the top networking connection, the highest GPA or or you know, certificate, whatever gets me through the door. There are a lot of different things that should get you through the door. And the doors need to be made bigger all the time. And so I think we have the opportunity in our audience to think on both sides of this question. How do I make the doors bigger if I'm a gatekeeper to hiring Mm -hmm. in my organization? And if I'm looking for a job, how do I really describe what I am good at and why I'm good at it? And how do I do that without apologizing for taking time to, you know, create new humans (laughs) and help my family or take care of an aging parent. Like, I just think instead of having holes in your resume, you should just describe what you've been doing during that period of time. Because surely if we've learned nothing else through COVID-19, it is that every human has a story Mm. and those stories are valuable and you bring so much good into the workplace I would much rather know about your two years managing your child's physical need and all of the skills that you acquired, shuffling medication and researching to understand what's going on and reaching out to experts. I would much rather hear about that Then see a two-year gap on your resume between the last time you worked and now, and have no discussion of it. And you don't have to go into detail that is like personal and painful. You you don't owe anybody that story. But I don't want you to apologize for that story. And I especially don't want you to go into a job interview feeling like you will be done a favor if someone hires you after having done the most vital
1: work in our society. Totally agree. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.
2: Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production.
1: Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Megan Hart is our Community Engagement Manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music.
2: Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers.
1: Martha Brunitsky.
2: Linda Daniel.
1: Allie Edwards.
2: Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller.
1: Helen Handley.
2: <laughs> Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creebs! Lori
0: Ladau, Lily McClure.
1: David McWilliams. Jared Minson.
2: Emily Neasley.
0: Connie Peterson, Tracy Putoff,
2: Sarah Ralph,
1: Jeremy Sequoia,
2: Karen True, Amy Whited, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.
1: To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You
2: can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter and
0: follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.